Hi, this is Chris Sarandon, and welcome to Cooking by Heart, where we talk about the vivid memories of the food we grew up with and the people and the stories attached to that time in our lives. Tonight, my guest is Michael Patrick King. For all of its six seasons, King piloted the hit series HBO's Sex and the City, for which he won numerous Emmy and Golden Globe Awards. And he acted as the writer, director, and producer of both blockbuster Sex and the City movies. He's also known for creating, executive producing, and directing another HBO series, The Comeback with Lisa Kudrow, named by Newsweek and Entertainment Magazine as one of the top 10 television series of the decade. In 2011, he created the hit sitcom Two Broke Girls with Whitney Cummings. And his most recent series, and just like that, a new chapter of Sex and the City, was HBO Max's most watched series ever, and is currently in production for its second season. Michael Patrick King, welcome to Cooking Thank by you. Heart. How are you, my friend? Thank you, Chris. I am well. And I think you said that it was Cooking by Heart was a a memory of what kind of food did you say? The the vivid memories of the food we grew up with. Yeah. And I the people can... and the stories attached to that time in our lives. Well, so there's you know, it's a two-parter. No, I got it. It's beautiful. Unfortunately, yep. as you know by my name, Michael Patrick King, I'm Irish. So it might yes. have to be adjusted to the bland memories of the food, of the we, food grew we grew up with. with. So I'll change yeah, them. And, and the people who didn't know how to cook ah. that we remember in the early oh. chapters. Okay. All right. So what the I'll do early then. Early chapters. As you know, in the in the wonderful world of, of recording, we can go back and redo. <laughs> No, so why would I'll... you? The contrast <laughs> is to everything. So, so what I usually start with, okay? What I start with on this show is there's a word I like called provenance, which is kind of a highfalutin word for where we come from, right? Now, you come from Scranton, Pennsylvania, right? right. Born, bred, lived there for a good part of your life. What was Scranton like when you were growing up there? Um, Scranton is a... Uh former coal mining town where the coal all left. Yeah, so what you, you we, have, we have that in common, by the way. Yeah, right. What you have is an industrial sort of a, 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 an industrial town filled with working class people. And I'm from right. a very, very working class family, Irish, uh, American, 100% Irish on both sides. And um, what did your father, parents do? Yeah, my father um, had when I was very young, my father had two jobs. He drove a beer truck and delivered coal, like coal, Whoa. like to people's furnaces. Yes. And like he would drive the truck up, put that chute into people's houses and coal would get dumped down. And that was his, his very big job. And my mother, I have three sisters and my mother, when we were a certain age, went back to her job, which was running a Krispy Kreme. She so ran... A Krispy Kreme in Scranton, Pennsylvania. She was I've... the manager and the counter and the book person. Wow. I had no so, idea that Chris, Krispy Kreme went back to ancient times in Scranton, it Pennsylvania. It did. <laughs> yes, people used to wear their togas in and get a coffee and a glaze. <laughs> um, I'm not that old, you bitch. But uh, it, went, it was definitely back in the early 60s. And, right. And the interesting thing is most people think of Krispy Kreme as a southern franchise because it's out of North Carolina. Right. But there was one franchise in Pennsylvania in Scranton, and it was run by this man named Joe Adcroft. And my mother was his right hand, everything. Mm -hmm. And she hired every one of my sisters to work in the donut shop 
but she yeah. did not hire me because I don't think she wanted to get involved with that much drama <laughs> and donuts. For some reason, I was excluded from that. Were you were you a a, 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 a drama hazard at that time I in your life? I think I was a very uh, dramatic kid. She was unfortunately not a good cook. Yeah, and our food consisted of potatoes and boiled potatoes and mashed right. potatoes. And my father had a tendency to drink. And on Sundays after church, you know, all the bars were closed, mm-hmm. except for the back door was open so people could go into the bars. And I oh. would have to go. It would be like 2 o'clock and it would be time for Sunday afternoon dinner. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I was told to call my father down at the bar and he wouldn't come home right away. And I do, this is very vivid, but I do remember my mother crying into the potatoes and then serving them to us. (laughs) A little extra salt. A little extra salt. (laughs) Just a pinch. Just a potent pinch of sadness. Just a soup son of sadness, (laughs) if you're going to go alliteration. But, um, you know, it was like, uh, it was potatoes and pot roast and meatloaf. And uh, very, very uh, by gray, gray, very by rote. In fact, I never had an actual uncanned vegetable until I grew up and was an adult. Never had a fresh uh, piece of broccoli. Never had a green bean that didn't come out of a can. Mm -hmm. So to me, food was uh, mostly just fuel. Which is a very interesting way to think about fuel as you get on the other side of a certain mentality like, oh, yeah, you don't need a lot of food. You just need fuel. But at that point, it was just you eat this because you're hungry. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, and and, and uh, at some point there will be a pill. Yeah. (laughs) You know, just pop it and go on your merry way but in yeah, the meantime I, you didn't have that luxury you were I sitting at home what was we the were, what was the dinner table like what was the was there conversation um i think not i think the conversation was did you do your homework mm-hmm. um is your homework done it wasn't like i have i have friends like you and other uh, Mediterranean people who the food was like everything, like you would sit around the table and eat and talk and discuss your days. That didn't happen. My no. father and mother were both very tired, very yeah. lovely, but very tired. Well, they weren't. I, remem- yeah. I remember the goal was to eat as fast as possible. Mm. You know, get just the hell out done. of there. Yeah. Yeah. Not, not just because what else is there to do it? table and i remember my mother saying you have to eat and at one point when i started to become myself and i was doing um i was in high school and i was doing a college theater production of three penny opera i got cast in in high school to be in this college summer production Mm -hmm. i remember i had to get to rehearsal and my mother said you're not leaving this house until you eat dinner and there was a boiled potato on the plate And I cut it in half because I didn't want to be late. And I ate half the potato (laughs) without chewing it. And I remember (laughs) it went into my throat. I know that feeling. Like a lump. Right. And I remember it screaming, but it coming out like a trombone that has a a, a hood on it, just like, (laughs) wow, 
when the potato <laughs> finally went down. I, it I was just, it, it was jettisoned. Jettisoned, right? Literally, <laughs> my desire to not be late for theater was bigger than my survival skill. And you know what? Right. It still is. I'm much more interested in being in time for theater than I am for my esophagus. Really? Yeah, still. Still. Oh, I'm still so food is is uh, something I have to slow myself down with. I really have to calibrate my energy down to enjoy a meal. Well, uh, it's perfectly understandable given the description you just gave me of what meals were like at home. But were yeah. there no were there no highlights? Were there oh, no sure. there was, holidays? There was, what about holidays? Yes, of course, holidays were magical. Yeah, turkey, mashed potatoes, gravy. Right. right. Sitting around for the holiday, turkeys, mashed potatoes, gravy. Beautiful, comforting, lovely family prayer. Always said grace, though. Even though we were fast, we Regard- always, always said grace. Regardless always, of the meal. Regardless of the meal. Always Holiday or not. Holiday, every night, grace. We always gave thanks for this meal, which we were about to receive. <laughs> receive. Through Christ our Lord. Right. <laughs> Through yeah, Christ exactly. our Lord. Amen. Whether it was good or not, we were giving thanks for it. And, right. you know, the fact of the matter is truly food was not, it wasn't negligent from my parents. Mm-hmm. It just wasn't our ne- it wasn't a skill set that their people had. They didn't really think about bread. Well, and you know, also, th- this is a, a, a theme that comes up, uh, believe it or not, often in my conversations with people, that dinner was uh, a pro forma kind of thing. Um, yeah. uh, and, and that mom was, and, and this is particularly with mothers who worked, very specifically with mothers who worked. I mean, there are some, I've talked to some people who have said, oh, yeah, well, mom was at home, but she just wasn't interested in food. But generally speaking, it's the mothers who were working. You know, it's, uh, it's another job. You're coming home and then you've got to turn around and uh, yeah. or create something for, in your case, uh, five people. Yeah. Six, including her. Yeah. Uh, it, it was drudgery. And also, it, you said the word create. Create really wasn't even in the mix. It was the repertory company of things that you already knew how to do. It's mm-hmm. Tuesdays, so it's Swiss steak. And the fact of the matter is, aside from the exhaustion, and I right. don't know how many other people talk about this, there was a fear of food in my house, a fear of the unknown. To this day, I'm yes. the only one in my family who has an adventurous spirit when it comes to food. And I only have that adventurous spirit because of my partner, Craig, mm-hmm. who, I mean, but there's, there was never fish in our house unless mm-hmm. it was a fish stick. And you can imagine how unspecial that is. So there is a fear of like, I don't know what that is. So I don't want to try it. Mm-hmm. That was inherent in not just my immediate family, but a lot of my ancestors, they did not enjoy the exploration of the unknown. They were uh, fear-based when it came to food, which is, when you think about it, I guess it's just because there wasn't a lot of variety available to them. So they became very conditionalized. Right. Uh, I mean, you're from like seafood and grapes and gourds and yeah. you know you're from like flemish paintings of tables your people yes to a certain extent 
and, and there was also the variety when I was growing up because not only did I eat at home, and at home it was Greek food almost yeah. exclusively, but at the restaurant, the variety was endless. Wow. And there were freshly made desserts. There were pies. There were cakes. There were puddings. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that when I ate, I ate at the restaurant once a week, all during the week, because my dad would change shifts. And when he was on the evening shift, my mom and I would go to the restaurant and I could have it whatever I wanted. So it was a real kind of, you know, uh, a potpourri of of delights. But the conversation didn't exist. The conversation was about the food. It wasn't about present current events or, you know, what's going on at school. Uh, nobody showed any interest. I, I, I'm, I'm also interested, did you ever go out? Did the family go out on occasion? Uh, we had very little money. And so that was an expense that was reserved for uh, your first communion. Mm-hmm. After your first communion, you would go to a, there was a restaurant called the Castle Restaurant mm-hmm. where the where the kings would go. We would go to the castle. Right. And it was a breakfasty thing because you're you didn't uh, eat before your first communion. So you could right. go and have there. I do remember Mother's Day going out for ham and eggs. Mm-hmm. Uh, it felt very much about brec- like that brunch thing before it was brunch. Mm-hmm. Sp- Easter. Yeah. Like even though we, ham was at home, we would go out for breakfast. But there wasn't, uh, there wasn't an enormous amount of money to spend at restaurants. And I'm not saying that the restaurants were even that expensive, but I'm right. telling you there was not enough money for that. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could stretch potatoes really far. Right, right. And uh, the, the potato pancakes, that's another thing that it just came to me. They're not bad, potato pancakes. You know, you take your mashed potatoes. Yeah, that, right. The cry, the tear stained mashed potatoes, right? So <laughs> right. Those tears can <laughs> the, last for the, up to two to three days, I right. believe, before right. they the high, before the they, high salinity mashed potatoes. Yeah. Yes. Good if eaten before this, right. day, you know, <laughs> <Right>. these tears. <laughs> the um, expiration but my, date. But they would make those into um, round, almost loaves, and then they would powder sugar, powder f- with flour, and then put them on. Um, you know, a griddle, and then put butter on top of them. I do have a very exotic memory from my grandmother. Ah. She would make something called toast on the stove. They had a wood-burning stove in the kitchen, Mm -hmm. and she would take the iron circle off and put a piece of bread on the fork, like a tong, through the thing, like a marshmallow, it, like a marshmallow, but it would go through and hold the whole piece of bread mm-hmm. and stick the bread over the flame, the open flame, the open flame. Mm. So it would get very, very charred in a great way. And then she'd flip it over and then she would put butter on it and then sprinkle sugar on it. Oh. And that was called toast on the stove. But it was really from Graham, my Grammy because mm-hmm. fire was involved. <laughs> and <laughs> fire was involved. Right. And um, so that was a great, exotic, special treat from my Grammy. And also in her yard, which we later moved into this house, my sister still lives in the house my mother was raised in. Mm. 
Um, this was Grammy's house. This is Grammy's house. Yeah. She had in her backyard a whole wall of blackberry bushes. Ooh. And I do remember going out there and picking bowls of blackberries and coming in and have washing them mm-hmm. and having them put them in a bowl with cream and of course sprinkled sugar. Right. So that's as organic as we got in turn. And that's pretty organic. Right. But even now, as I speak of it, it's the opposite of the color I was painting 10 minutes ago about my family. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. feels farm to table in our backyard. I, that's those are the words were coming out of my mouth. Just as you said them. Yeah. yeah I mean, it, it was really interesting because she, my Grammy was really kind of like a, magical creature like she would make toast on the stove and she had blackberries and she actually would um she once went out and took a clothes pole you know that stick that holds the drying clothes from hitting the ground yep because i was being teased and she chased a bunch of boys away who were bullying me with the clothes pole so she Mm. was kind of um massively protective yeah yeah protective almost like borderline borderline witch slash fairy you know mm-hmm. i mean she was she was very grammy fitzsimmons very uh was that that was your mom's maiden name my fitzsimmons, my fitzsimmons yeah and now that i think about it, you know my mother is was from a farm but ah. it, she fell far from the tree apparently yeah there was a obviously. farm and uh all that and my grandfather her father drove a bread truck fresh bread so he delivered bread around from a bakery so right. but he wasn't was a ba- he wasn't a baker he was a delivery guy delivery guy uh with, any experiences with the with that with the bread with his other than the the bread that she grilled no not really did he bring did he bring dale bread home did he leave it uh i i don't really remember yeah. i do remember i do remember dale donuts I mean, there was, you know, Dale Donuts and special prices of Dale Donuts. And the other interesting thing about the donuts is Krispy my Kreme. mother, huh? Krispy Kreme. Krispy yeah. Kreme. Yeah. For Cub Scouts, they would do a donut um, sale, like the way Girl Scouts did cookies. And my right. mother was like the donut czar. I mean, she really facilitated that. And in the middle of that thing, I would walk into the dining room and the dining room would be like the the last scene in, uh, in Raiders of the Lost Ark, that storeroom, that mm-hmm. piles and piles. I would walk through aisles of don- boxes Ooh. of donuts that were Cub Scouts were coming to pick up to deliver, like boxes. As a matter of fact, when, my, when I came home from school on any day, I would know my mother was there because there would be uh, powdered sugar footprints on the dining room rug. That coming in, I would see she was there because she'd come from the bakery and walk through the, and I would see the footprints first and know that she was uh, home because of that. Oh, what a wonderful image! Yeah, what you got to use it. You got to use it somewhere, I'm sometime. Sure. Uh, sure. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So, so was your Grammy the one? I, I'm, I'm also interested. You know, when when we're growing up, that there's there's often, particularly when you have a situation where your parents are not necessarily communicating with you in any way shape or form that you're basically you know you're the kid uh as i was growing up it was kids are are to be seen but not heard uh was there a person who saw you who really saw you who was the first person who really saw you um i would say my mother really saw me 
Yeah. And maybe what she saw scared her. So awesome. maybe she looked at, oh, well, I was a, I was a curious child, clearly a sissy, yeah. clearly somebody, I was putting on religious epics in the backyard. Mm. I would, I would dress my sisters up in her wedding gown and bridesmaids dresses and, and make shows. So they clearly saw me what they didn't know what to do with me is the right. thing. I think the first person who got me, got you. really got me yeah. was this woman in this production that I was in, in that college production. The college production. The, right. Yeah. And it was the woman who was playing pirate Jenny in three penny opera. And she was even old. She was like, I would say she must've been 40. Like mm -hmm. she was the professional. And for the first time, her name was Ruth Judd. And she was exotic. She was Jewish, mm -hmm. intellectual, mm -hmm. very Ruth Gordon in theory. I didn't know who Ruth Gordon was, but she right. was very Ruth Gordon. Invi got my sense of humor as an adult. I didn't even know. Like, you know how suddenly all of a sudden you're in the yeah. group yeah, yeah, with people and they get you and you're... 17 and they're 40 and all of a mm -hmm. sudden they see you yep and i often think about her what she must have seen and how she delicately sort of opened this like pbs tote bag world to me <laughs> like she would invite me to her apartment with and have to have to her house her half yep. a house where yep. she lived with her husband james and they would invite me to dinner and they would make food I had never seen. They would drink things like ginger beer. I was mm -hmm. like, my father drank real beer. Right. I didn't know what ginger beer was. Right. There was homemade bread. There were salads. Mm -hmm. Very bizarre. Challah. Yes. Um, but rugs, like oriental rugs and carved wood bowls and paintings and pbs on the television in the kitchen mm -hmm. and record albums with right. comedy records and nichols and may and that whole world that they sort of included me coffee they would drink like coffee and it's the first time i'd ever seen the Melita thing with the right. filter, with the hot water and right. into the cup. The drip, yeah. The drip. I'd never seen anything like that. It was like a percolator or nothing. And so the exotic, mm -hmm. the exotic sort of specialness of who she was and the smell of her house and the good soaps at her sink. And uh, it was really like a different world, like a, like almost like a, a different color palette. Like yeah jewel tones and mm -hmm. darks and woods but also the feeling that this is where i belong yeah this you is know? this, this is, is where i belong and i didn't even know it yep exactly and the heightenedly the sponge of it all i would mm -hmm. assume yeah to be 17 and yep. just soaking all this up and i remember it used to make my mother crazy. Yeah. 
and she would call and say, uh, can you send Michael home? Now, I don't know what she thought was happening. <laughs> like you'd been <laughs> captured. Or, or, or captivated you know, yeah. or messed with. Or, mm-hmm. But the idea that I had another world to go to threatened my mother as much as fish. (laughs) (laughs) Like too exotic. Yeah. What is that? I don't know what to do with that. So, and I always, she'd go, what what are you doing over there? And I would go, we just, we're talking. That blew her mind because I wouldn't even think about that until suddenly I was doing it. But she was very special. And she, even when I went away to college, uh, if I came to town, she would find a restaurant for us to go have lunch with. That. Find a restaurant. Yeah. Okay, we're going to this restaurant. And I'd be like, okay. And that was an epiphany. And and the next, there's like been a couple food epiphanies. The next one I had, and it was really stunning was I was in New York. I was 22. No, I was 21. I was waiting on tables at a restaurant called Ruskay's on the Upper West Side. Yeah, I remember good, Ruskay's. It was a good restaurant. Yeah. Very fancy. Yeah, yeah. Ish. Casual, fancy, special. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was, also, it was also an actor, uh, actor artist hangout. Writer, artist yeah. hangout, yeah. yeah. So I worked a graveyard shift, which meant from 11 o'clock, at, 10 o'clock at night till 6 in the morning. And at 6 in the morning... We would lock the doors. It was a 24-hour restaurant, except for 6 to 8, it was closed in the morning. And we would have a family meal, the waiters. Right. And one day— Staff staff meal. Staff meal at 6 o'clock in the morning, somebody brought out from the kitchen a bowl of green spaghetti. And I tossed a pesto which mm-hmm. I had never heard of or seen. Mm-hmm. And I ate that and I was in heaven. And to this day, I will chase pesto. And it's a direct link to the surprise of that moment yes. where I was like, what is that? It's green spaghetti. I didn't know it was. Yeah probably linguine or whatever it was. Mm -hmm. But the taste of it was an explosion that I'd never had before. The cheese, the pine nuts, that very abstract taste of pesto, basil and garlic. I didn't know what that was, but I was hooked. I was no longer afraid of that. It was a very significant moment. And by extension... You were no longer afraid of trying no. uh, uh, things that were exotic, that were no, not necessarily because, related. Yeah, Because I moved to New York when I was uh, – I went to college. at. I was a, uh, one of those kids who went to college at 17 because I was that early. I was a September kid. Right, right. So when I left for college, when I left home for college, I was 4 foot 11. When I came home my first year, I was 5 foot 10 and a half. <laughs> I grew oh. almost a foot my first That's year of college. Extraordinary. Yeah. It, it's not unusual, but extraordinary. It was pretty shocking because, I mean, if you look at the spiritual, emotional, 
manifestation of the minute I stepped away from my house, I was yeah. allowed to grow. Yes. That right. so when I went to New York, I was now growing as a person, and here comes mm-hmm. pesto, and I'm not afraid of it at all. Right. Uh, I I have a question that, that I'm going to go back a little bit to, but then I want to mm-hmm. follow this this line of conversation, uh, and that is that you were an altar boy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, was that an escape or was that something that you felt was necessary in order to immerse yourself further in the life of your family and of your people, uh, as it were, or was it a spiritual thing? Um, yeah, listen, uh, being an altar boy, I had a very, my feeling about Catholicism, um, is directly linked to my mother's feel about fear, feel. I almost said fear. There you go. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. My mother's feel about Catholicism, which is uh, blessed mother based. It's almost the brand. She chose the brand she wanted, mm-hmm. which was the blessed mother, the holy family, the love Catholicism. Mm. Not the crucified Christ on the cross, bleeding. Like, that wasn't her mm-hmm. M.O. She leaned into the love, the the, the heart, the, the bleeding heart, yeah, but yeah. still the yeah. heart of Jesus and Mary and the family. She was right. there. It's almost the heathen version of Catholicism, almost the female version, the Game of Thronesy version, like mm-hmm. where you have a goddess yes. and you follow that. Well, so it, it was it was in a way the way that Christianity was based, uh, particularly as it came out of Easter, because Easter was a pagan holiday, and Easter yeah. was it was about birth. Yeah, it was about the entities that give birth. Yeah, not the death of Christ. No, it was about the 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 flowers on the cross rather yeah. than the cross. Yeah, but the reality is, when I I'm from the very end of the old Catholic Church, like the Latin. When the church was a mystery and it was, you were invited to watch, but you weren't asked to participate except silently in your head while people were praying. Mm -hmm. So I had all that pageant and uh, like Holy Thursday night, that incense and all the little flower girls throwing petals and the altar boys carrying the crosses and the, the, the magnificent Yep. Uh, order and pageantry where like we would practice and the nuns would have a clicker and they would have it hidden in their hand and you would mm-hmm. hear click, click. And then you all genuflected at the same time at and stood time. up. So there was this ridiculous opera. Right. And right. we were all the supernumeraries. We were like mm-hmm. the show. But so it was choreographed. It was choreographed and yeah. it was magnificent and it was filled with magic. Yep. Like you, it, it left such a blank that you could fill in because mm-hmm. you didn't know anything. And it was music and smoke yep. and scents and yep. flowers and nighttime. And, mm-hmm. and it was the mystery of it. I was so, just, it was, that was the word that was on the tip of my tongue. I was an altar boy as well. Sure. Right. And, and, and I, the same I, world. Yeah. 
Yeah, the same and, and, Latin. And it, yep, but this this was Greek, or or in my case, even. we had a polyglot kind of of uh, congregation. So there were Syrians, there were Russians, so there were all kinds of exotic languages flying yeah. around. Yeah. But then on uh, particularly Easter week, Friday oh, yeah. night, you know, the and and Saturday night, the knocking on the door of the church with the catafalque. Uh, of pallbearers uh, carrying the tomb, I mean, oh. carrying the coffin, uh, knocking on the door and the people on the other side answering. I mean, it was just, you know, it was great, great theater. Great theater. And on Holy Thursday, I was just talking to my sister Eileen about this. On Holy Thursday, after our ceremony at like 7.30 to mm-hmm. 9, we would get in our cars and drive around. Because, you know, a Holy Thursday is like, lilies and the the altar and the monstrance is out the big gold thing holding the host so it was like the vegas of christmas like every (laughs) easter everybody was like look at this this is our version Mm -hmm. and then you would drive around in your car to see three to look at other people's churches and i mean said to me that was you had to do that you had to visit three other churches and i Mm -hmm. just thought we were doing it as the great Vegas tour, but I loved going in and seeing how somebody else displayed the monstrance and what their church looked like. So number one, to answer your question, hooked, yes, hooked in the theater, hooked in the magic, hooked in the ritual. So of course I wanted to be part of it because, you know, my big joke was the very first mass I was asked to serve or given to serve was five o'clock in the morning dark two people in the church an old italian woman and some old man Mm -hmm. and me and the priest and i asked my mother to come and take pictures (laughs) and she said i don't think your heart's in the right place (laughs) you know what i mean i literally wanted to be on the (laughs) altar like and i actually had this identity where I actually was competing in my mind with other altar boys. It's like, I'm the holiest. Yes. I'm the most, I'm the one who has invisible wings. Right. Right. That I, that no one else can see. I'm the holiest. So it's this weird combination of competitive ego, knowing I was cute Mm -hmm. and adorable wanting to be on stage look i'm on the stage you're in the audience i'm on the stage and then the and you know chris i just finished this big piece of work and i'm talking still about the feeling of being in a church when no one's there Mm -hmm. and the there is that part of me too, where I would be lighting the candles in the morning when it was dark. Yes. And I felt that I could own, if I looked at the statues long enough that they would look back at me. Yes. And I would get so sure that was going to happen that I would break the gaze and get out of there because I didn't <laughs> want that engagement. Mm-hmm. And people don't know this, but one of our primary, you and I's primary artistic connection is I wrote a play where a playwright, yeah. I wrote a play called Thorn mm-hmm. and Bloom. And Joanna, your magnificent actress wife, was yes. the star of the other one. But you were the star of the first one, where a Hollywood TV writer invites Jesus mm-hmm. to lunch at a Hollywood restaurant to come out to him. 
Yes. And you were my Jesus. Yeah. And yeah. I still to this, and by the way, everybody, if you're going to have a Jesus, get Chris Sarandon. Because <laughs> he's believable and hilarious. It's very rare to get a Jesus that feels like Jesus and yet knows how to do a joke. You right. can get Jesus actor, but you can't get Jesus actor slash somebody who understands comedy, Matthew. Yeah, yeah. But I'm still to this day mining whatever that was in me. And w was it, uh, were you mining it early in your career? I know you started when you first no. came to New York, when you first came to New York, you were a, you were a, a, a baggage handler. Yeah. Uh, My first job at 20, I quit college because right. I thought, I'm in the theater department, and the only reason to stay is to get a teaching degree in case it right. doesn't work out. And I thought right. to myself, well, if it doesn't work out, no one's going to hire me to teach theater from this college. I mean, mm -hmm. it will only be because I became something that I would want to teach right. or be hired to teach. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so I came in the first job. The only connection I had in New York was I had a cousin who worked at Greyhound as a bus driver because I'm glamorous. And I actually got a job, my only connection that I ever used in any capacity to move ahead was I got a connection at Greyhound. And I got off the bus at the Port Authority at 11 a.m., put my luggage in a locker, and went downstairs to start unloading the buses at 3 p.m. And I vowed even though my where I'm from is two and a half hours away, yeah. I vowed to myself that I would not leave the city for three months, no matter how bad it got, because it would have been too easy. And I literally was like a Dickens character. And, I was and, covered in exhaust. Oh, I'm sure. Hand, handing people their luggage, like, take me with you. Please help please, me. Sir. Please, please, sir. Please, sir. Rescue me from my own dream of being right. a performer. Right. This is the, you know, have you got a little something for me? An escape route, maybe. Right. But, oh, my God. Yeah. yeah. So I started. And, and by the way, folks, those of you who are listening, Michael and I both uh, lived in New York at a time when that part of town was – what a kind of Armageddon uh, a war zone. It was a war zone. It was the worst place, one of the worst places in America. What's uh, interesting in now is people keep talking about New York City right now, and they're also talking about Los Angeles, where I currently leave, live, yeah. and I'm leaving to go to New York next week mm -hmm. again for eight months. But people are talking about the cities that I live in as though they're bad, the and I keep saying to people, "Well, yeah." But it's not the end story. There will be maybe, hopefully, a shift. Because when we were in New York in the 70s and oh. 80s, I mean, I used to eat my lunch at the Port Authority, looking out the window, watching, pardon me if you have kids, hookers, service guys yeah. in cars on 11th Avenue yeah. in front of everybody at night. So, I mean, it was raw. Yeah. It was nasty, nasty time. But then nasty. you, the, but then you moved on. Interestingly, you interested. You, interestingly, you moved into food. You were a waiter I'm for a long waiter time. Waiter forever, yes. forever. And, and by the way, too, uh, uh, for those of you who are listening, the, uh, uh, I think that we live in a time when young performers 
expect things to happen immediately. Oh so they go to Los Angeles pr primarily, but they also go to New York thinking that I'm going to be a star overnight or my life is over. And Michael, you stuck it out for how many years? I went to New York as at a 20, handler like I said, and a waiter and a yeah, yes. I went to New York at 20 and I still didn't quite have my rent every month when I was 38. So that's 18 years 18 of years. enormous lack of validation financially. Mm -hmm. Were you performing uh, at all? Constantly. I did everything. And when I tell people now, and I talk to a lot of writers and a lot of performers, mm -hmm. and I say, here's the thing. Everybody has their own path. But what you cannot do is expect it to happen. You can't wait 18 years for it to happen. Yes. You have to be making everything happen every day. And maybe it will happen after 18 years. Or if you're right. lucky, you know, my other joke about New York is my experience of people that I know who went to New York, you either get something right away. Yes. Or you have to wait 10 years. I, I, I was lucky like that. I got a soap right opera as soon, as soon as I got yeah, to New York. Yeah, because you believe that you're still talented. Mm -hmm. Like you believe you're a talented and then you get it and that is magnifying what you already have. But New York can knock you over and oh, yeah. then you have to doubt yourself. And once you start doubting yourself, it's very hard to just sort of grab the ring because you're so busy pulling yourself up to grab the ring. So I did everything I could. I think it's very important to shape shift. And for me, I thought I was going to go to New York and be at 20 and be and introducing Michael Patrick King in a movie. Like <laughs> right. he's so young. Yep. We have to introduce him because <laughs> there's no way you could have seen him. He was just born <laughs> right. two days ago emerged. in a field. Right. We just <laughs> discovered this magical actor. Yeah. And, you know, 38. At the age of 38, I went to Hollywood as a writer. But all the way through there, I was mm -hmm. trying everything I could. I worked in every restaurant. Yeah. I worked in every off, off, off Broadway for no money. And I finally started writing plays and sketches. And that started to be the thing. And I was like, oh, I'm a writer. That's it. That's when lightning started to... Right. I call it the green lights. That's when the lights started turning green, like go that way, comedy, writing. Yes. Uh, but yeah, it's a long journey. But you, but you, but you, have to, you have to have the clarity of vision and a purpose to know when, to, when the light goes green to go. Oh, yeah. But I don't even think you need the clarity of a vision as much as you need an undying, unexplained, Unexplained yes. belief that you have something special to share. It, it, yes. it, it, it's unexplicable. If you're yep. looking for proof from outside, you'll never get it. Yep. But to keep going when no one is saying yes, but you think I'm not going to quit. It's, I didn't have a clear path. Well, I'll be an actor for four years and then I'll do comedy. And then I'll, I just kept going. Mm -hmm. What is it? What is it? What is it? And, and you have to have a mad drive. When I was a waiter at Russ Gay's and I worked all night long, I would go home. Oh, here's another magical story. Mm -hmm. My friend Sarah was the pastry chef and she came in when I left in the morning mm -hmm. and I would go home and sleep from like 
7 to 11. And when I wake up, she would have finished her baking and there would be scones with butter and jam wrapped in aluminum foil stuck in the window grate of my basement front apartment. On her way home, she would drop those off. So I would go out and there would be these almost hot scones, Mm -hmm. freshly made with butter and jam for my breakfast. But I would get up and then I would think I'd be like exhausted because I had four hours sleep, but I had to get up because I had to make it mm-hmm. abstract. And then it would be like 2.30 and I'd be like, I am so tired. And I would say to myself, if you take this nap, you're not going to make it. <laughs> if, you, if you take this nap, you are not going to make it. Yep. And then I would, of course, fall asleep. But the drive has to be bigger than the proof that you have anything. And, you know, it's either sometimes true or sometimes diluted. Yeah. But if there's no other way, that's the way. It's a calling. You are called. You are called to service. You're called to to realize yeah. some part of yourself that yeah. only, to serve yourself or yeah yeah that only you feel but mm. don't even understand yeah. needs to be recognized and then yeah. when you're able to get in the right uh lane mm-hmm. or the right wind you can start to realize oh everything was about this yeah. everything was this now i can put this in and that in and take that and put that in the writing and yeah and and then but it also comes with cleaning up who you are personally you can't be in my case i was in, in the closet for a very long time so i was mm-hmm. pushing everything away and it's it's a it's a whole symphony of a Roman Catholic Sings. young gay man. Yes. Yeah. The only now, son, the only son yeah. of a beer uh, truck driving, uh, baseball playing, mm-hmm. John Wayne looking man. I, I'm interested in the, the, the connection between, because you ended up, uh, I, I mean, you're, you're, you're the, the, the expression of who you are came to fruition with sex in the city. Yeah. Uh, in that it allowed you to do what, how did, how did it allow you to express yourself in ways that not only had you not expressed yourself, but that the, the world had not seen expressed on television. Okay. Well, number one, the idea, the main calling card and why the show became, so dynamic at first is because of the word sex. No one had really tried to be funny about sex. So the idea for me, after all this Catholicism, all this hiding, all this repression, self-repression and societal repression, that I was now able on a pay cable channel to let it rip and use my comedy head to talk about shame was the magic for mm-hmm. me. It was the, the just add water and stir. I'm allowed to make fun of my shameful feelings around sex. 
So that's number one. I yeah. knew that it was thrilling and completely green. No one had even been in that pasture yet. No one had even put a tool into that soil. So mm-hmm. that was good. And number two, it was uh, refreshing for me because I was coming from the network where everything in network television that I would hand them was always too complicated and too big and too and I'm not saying I'm a big complicated thinker. I'm saying mm. they weren't looking for what right. I was saying. They they're looking, looking for common de- they're looking for common denominator. They're looking for a simple they yeah. think they're looking for simple. Right. And so now I get to cable, HBO, especially not just cable. This these two people, Carolyn Strauss and Chris Albrecht, who ran HBO, they were yeah. like, go. And I felt like a dog that was, you know, on those big leashes on the backyard, they don't even know they're on a leash. I was on a leash, but I was running like crazy. Mm -hmm. And it just actualized something. And the third thing was women. I have three sisters. Yeah, that's where I was going. Yeah. Yeah, I have three (laughs) sisters. I love my sisters. Mm -hmm. I never, people always say, well, I guess you could write the show because you're gay. And I sometimes think, or because I like women. And I think of them. women. Yeah. I think of women as my friends. Yeah. Because my best friends were my three sisters. I never saw them as others. I and because I was gay, I never thought of them as objects mm-hmm. or women in general as in general, objects. Right. I thought of women as friends. And so for me to be writing characters uh, that I understood and could imagine and use parts of myself and know that I could also make fun of all of our insecurities about sex, all of Mm -hmm. us Mm -hmm. and show things. And also the final magic of that show for me as a writer was that it was about outsiders Single people were outsiders still. Society was like, you get married at a certain age or you're wrong. So if you translate that to you marry a woman or you're wrong, I'm right in the right wheelhouse to be be talking about the anarchy of tearing down societal norms about relationships. And and you had them in a a setting – that was um, a very allowing of that that yeah. you know that paradigm to be expressed in that it's New York City, it's yeah. where everybody goes to change, it's where yes. everybody goes to be somebody else. Yeah, uh, and also it was a window of New York that was yes. not dangerous. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it actually, the city became more like the show after the show came on than it mm-hmm. was when we were imagining it. Yeah. It, it actually started to become part of a personality where people started coming expecting that experience and therefore it manifested. Yeah, yeah. But, but it was just a really perfect zeitgeist moment. Yeah. The city was right there and was really still exciting. And the other thing is, I think... Something becomes a hit if the characters are saying something just as you're thinking it or a week before you say it. 
Yeah. So you're like, it's there. It's there in the audience. It's there. But it's no waiting. One has said it. it's, it's waiting. waiting. Yeah. It's it's the moment whose time has come. Everybody's thinking this. Yes. All of a sudden, these characters are saying it, and it's exciting because nobody said it. But it's not like you're saying things from Mars where people yes. are not acknowledging that it exists. You have to right. be saying the truth. Yeah. These right are things down. that these are things that everybody goes through. Not only women. We all go through embarrassing moments in sex. Of sex. We all go through, yeah, exactly. Sex and love and shame and thing and the fun thing about it is like I wrote them in too. So it's like to me it's a full conversation about sexuality and individuals Mm -hmm. and people when they rethink the show, they sort of replayed in their minds that it's really about all these women wanting to find love and and wind up married. And the, the, the DNA of the show is the most important relationship you have is the one yeah. you have with yourself. And, and that's and, the only thing I ever write, really. Yes. Yes. And, and interesting also to me, just coming from this conversation, is that a lot of the show takes place with these women eating. Yeah, of course. Oh, yeah. I mean, talk about false... Full, full circle. F- yeah. I mean, at, once the show became a hit, I could get into any restaurant in the city, first of <laughs> right. all, to eat because yes, they would want to yeah. be on the show. Yeah, but yeah. then we were filming in every restaurant in the city. And you were and making then, places famous. Famous. And then, of course, the joke is once you film someplace, you never want to go there again. Because, you know, I mean, I would have writing rooms <laughs> in the kitchen. Right. We'd be re- doing scripts in the kitchen because television schedule is demanding mm-hmm. so while they're filming we're in the kitchen and you're like well i never want to come here i know what the kitchen looks like <laughs> <laughs> but what's really great is i used to work at a restaurant called the saloon and it was actually the last restaurant i worked at and it was across the lincoln center and it's pretty famous because uh the waiters used to be on roller skates outside oh. now i was an inside waiter and one of the great stories about the saloon was i was what you call an am versus a PM and the PM waiters were the night waiters and the PM waiters came in as though they were stars. Yes. And the AM waiters were their servants. Ah. And so there was this hierarchy of the changeover between the AMs and the PMs and everybody and everybody would be so fueled. And we actually filmed an episode at the saloon when Carrie went back because she actually, we had did undone an episode where Carrie had an abortion and the waiter that got her pregnant worked at the saloon and she mm. was curious about the saloon. And I sat as the executive producer looking at monitors at the same tables where I sat folding the napkins uh. for the PMs. And I was like, Oh, this is such a great <laughs> yeah. connection to be sitting in this exact same table, in this exact yeah. same chair many years later mm-hmm. where I was at this place. And that is the restaurant where there was a manager who was brutal. Actually, my first pilot I ever wrote was called Hell. <laughs> and it was a show about five waiters working in a restaurant in hell's kitchen and it was about how you become friends with people when you're in hell mm-hmm. and this manager of this restaurant was so evil 
that I created an entire show around it. <laughs> oh, wow. But at one point they said uh, it was Christmas time and they had put this note out that said, whoever doesn't work their shifts on Christmas, even if they get a replacement, has the pleasure of effing firing themselves. And I was like, wow. what? And the tables used to be covered in butcher paper. Mm -hmm. So I took, a, I wasn't going to work on Christmas. I had to get home for some turkey and potatoes. <laughs> so I <laughs> actually wrote on this butcher paper, I have had the pleasure of effing firing myself. I've had the pleasure of effing firing myself, put it over the time clock and walked out. <laughs> Legend. <laughs> Years later, I met someone as you're the one who effing fired you're themselves the one. on the butcher paper. Yes. Right. <laughs> but I would actually, speaking of drive, I would only work in a restaurant three months and then walk out the door mm. because I wasn't going to be a waiter. Even if I walked to a different restaurant. Yes, right. Psychologically. Makes psychologically. perfect sense. Yeah. Got to get out of sense. here. Now, yeah. I, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you to repeat a story that my wife, Joanna, told me you tell about a catering incident. Well, there's so many, but I did wait on Ruth Gordon at a dinner party once. Oh, well, that, That's that redeems you in my It eyes. redeems me. I was yes. the only waiter. There was a woman named Marilyn Salinger who was very big in CBS News. I remember. She her. lived on Central Park South. Yep. She had one of those kind of fancy apartments, and I was there to serve and turn the green beans on. Like there was there – was, I was going to make the green beans. That was it. So – I sort of that and to open the door and let people in. And yeah. so it was Garson and Kanan and, and a bunch of fancy people. Right. And they said, Ruth Gordon may be coming down from upstairs. She lived in the building, but she isn't feeling well. And I was like, okay. So I'm getting them all sat and I've got the green beans on and I poured the wine. And all of a sudden I hear ding dong. And I go down the hall to the table and I open the door to the door from the table and I open the door and Ruth Gordon's there. She's about, this four foot tall yeah, in a black velvet mini dress. And she's got her hair with a big bow. And she goes, who the hell are you? And I said, <laughs> I'm Michael. I'm the waiter. She goes, well, aren't you something? She said, come here. I want you to go in the kitchen and get me a hard back chair, not a soft chair, but a hard back chair, the hardest one you can find and bring it to me. So she went in. <laughs> And I brought her the hardback chair and she grabbed my arm and she said, this is like that movie where the famous Russian star is talking to the cute Serbian surf. I mean, it was magical. And I'm doing the dishes and it was them talking about the movies and right. how all the movies now aren't any good. And they're just all machines and mm. there's no heart and there's no soul. And Ruth Gordon says, I don't know. Have you seen the latest Star Wars? It's fantastic. Oh. And I thought to myself, and that's why she's young. Yes. Was always she's young. Was young when she was alive. old. Yeah. Uh, old and young. Still yes. like, what's up? I'm going to yep. see everything. I'm not yeah. going to get in an old paradigm. And what I learned from her is like, Anytime I'm at a conversation and I hear people my age now saying, oh, the movies are so terrible. I always mm. think about Ruth looking at something and going, but have you seen this? Mm -hmm. So that was 
special. Many, that's many. Very that's very special. That's wonderful. I was also a servant for a family in East Hampton. Oh, yeah. I was the houseboy for a family in East Hampton in the summer and had to serve people like Kurt Vonnegut. And it was like, I didn't know from food. And here I was serving food. And I wore, they created an outfit for me. I lived there. My <laughs> outfit was, she said, Michael, we have to take, they were young. They were like probably 38. Mm. I was 20, 38 and 40. And mm. they had a lot of money and they lived right on the beach in this big mansion. And they took me shopping and my outfit was white jeans, a red and white striped shirt, and clogs. I look like the guy on the Cracker Jack box. And I had a right. red and white shirt and a right. blue and white shirt. Sailor and boy. I would, sailor boy. And yeah. I would serve the food that the cooks had made. With, uh, uh, but you had to have that outfit on. I had to have that outfit on. Oh, Michael. Michael. I well at this point we could continue talking for days. I just want to say in my yes. in my benefit in my, my defense yes. that now I eat everything, and the reason I do is because my partner Craig, who we've been with twenty one years, the first yes. time I went on vacation with him in Mexico, I heard him say to his friends who we were with, twice, Michael doesn't eat that, Michael doesn't eat that, mm. and I thought. That is so not hot. So Michael started to eat that. And now? I started eating fish and sushi and everything. I just overruled my entire background because I thought, do you want to be the person who the person that you love, another man, has to say, Michael won't eat that. Michael's afraid of vegetables. Mm -hmm. And I just broke my whole patterning. And so well, now I'm in a way, in a way you were, you, you were like Ruth. You were, you were able to reset at a reset? time in your life, at a time in your life when you were not, you know, when you were, you know, settled and, and this is the yeah. way things are now and move on. And that's move what on, we all have it. to do. Yeah. And can you imagine, can you imagine if I went through life not tasting shrimp can you imagine if i didn't know what sushi was can you imagine if i was afraid of food mm -hmm. there's so many other things to not be afraid of food yeah. is so magnificent and yeah. craig is an amazing cook and to make full circle to tell you about our relationship mm -hmm. one night we're falling asleep and i'm thinking about sex in the city and the characters and the sh and what am i going to do with carrie and out of nowhere, the lights are out. He mm -hmm. says, what about those potatoes I made last week? And I thought, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> those were something. <laughs> that's... And that's what he's thinking about. Yeah. Thank God somebody's thinking about something real. Yes, exactly. And here we are talking about the things that are real in our lives and we both are so fortunate that we have reality in our lives with our mates. Oh my God! And magical and I, reality. Yeah, magical reality. And and Michael, I'm I'm going to conclude by thanking you. I can't tell you how much this has meant to me to have this conversation, and how wonderful it is to listen to you um, uh, transform uh, your life from your <laughs> from your childhood through. Well, today where you sure. eat you eat everything i eat everything i'm <laughs> telling you those tears in the potatoes pay off <laughs> pay off <laughs> they do 
Michael Patrick King. Michael Patrick King. Thank you, my friend. Chris, my friend. My pleasure.